Our first guest is a professor of supply chain management at the University of Manitoba and the author of a recent piece available at theconversation.com entitled Valentine's Day. COVID-19 wilted the flower industry, but sustainability is still a thorny issue. Dr. Paul Larson is with us. Dr. Larson, Paul, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Well, good morning and happy Valentine's Day to you. Well, thank you very much. It is absolutely staggering, Paul, the amount of money we spend on Valentine's Day every year on or around Valentine's Day. Now, you quote a U.S. number in your piece, so it's pretty safe to extrapolate that 10% of that would be spent in Canada. But it's $1.9 billion in the USA every year. Yes, yeah, and, and so that means it's, uh, like you say, about 10% of that. In Canada, a very large industry. Enormous industry, and it's it's strange, and you point this out in, in your in your piece, and it's a very good piece, too, by the way. You, you it, it all boils down, however, at the local level to flowers, uh, flower shops, which are very small businesses, aren't they? Oh, yes. The, the average flower shop uh, only employs about two people. Yes, yeah, so the, these are uh, sole proprietorships of very small businesses. So let's start connecting the dots, Dr. Larson. Uh, let's find out, first of all, I know that uh, uh, in your piece you talk about the Netherlands, and as one might expect, being responsible for about 80% of the world's tulips, which for them is an enormous, enormous mega-billion-dollar industry. But they are not, by any stretch, the world's biggest producer of flowers, are they? Uh, they're not. They they produce a lot of flowers, but uh, more flowers are grown near the equator. So, in the case of North America, we get a lot of our flowers from uh, Colombia and Ecuador. Ah, okay. And uh, is this new, Paul, or is this uh, something that's been uh, sort of or- organically happening for many years? Yeah, it, it's been for many years uh, that, that 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 has been our primary source. Here in North America, the, the South American countries, the the, the landscape uh, in in the Andes down there is very fertile for growing roses and carnations and such. And are these uh, flowers, by the way, grown indoors or outdoors? Well, of course, these flowers are grown outdoors. Uh, you know, in Winnipeg today, believe it or not, it's minus thirty and. There's not a lot of flowers growing outside. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, by the way, we have we have no trouble believing it's minus thirty this morning in Winnipeg, Paul. It's that just uh, it's it's minus something in Vancouver, and we're kind of stunned by that. Oh, you poor! Thing. I know, I know. <laughs> so let's talk about how the flowers get from the fields of Columbia to the flower shops of Ontario and British Columbia. Yeah, this is actually quite a fascinating uh, logistics dance because the flowers have a very short shelf life and they need to be maintained uh, in the cold chain, as they call it. They need to be maintained at about one degree uh, Celsius, which, of course, if if it was one degree centigrade today in Winnipeg, we'd all be happy. Mm -hmm, Of course. Uh, But but then, yeah, so so they'll they'll be uh, picked from the fields, put in bunches, and then make their way straight to a, a warehouse maintained at temperature uh, on refrigerated trucks. So, so even starting right from the field. And then in, in the case of Columbia, they'd make their way to the uh, Bogota International Airport or the El Dorado Airport, and then uh, board a, a flight 
And most of the flowers coming to Canada or throughout North America would pass through Miami okay. International Airport. And then from there, uh, they'd go on trucks, refrigerated trucks, for the rest of the journey to whatever final destination was. Oh, interesting. So from so they get flown from South America to North America, and they come into Miami, but then they don't get transferred to another flight north to Canada. They get put on trucks. Yeah, for the most part, put on trucks. There's some exceptions to that, but uh, by and large, they, they go by truck out of Miami Airport. And is that just an economics thing? It's much easier to, to and cheaper to, to ship large quantities of flowers by truck than it would be to fly them anywhere? That's it in a nutshell. Yeah, there, there's, there, you know, going to any one place as they fan out throughout North America, the combination of the, the volumes and the economics uh, tilt things towards truck as opposed to air. Okay, so now um, these trucks are, uh, I'm assuming that the, the one gap that I'm, I'm still trying to fill in in my mind is the flight from Ecuador to Miami. They truck them from the fields uh, in refrigerated trucks. They maintain the flowers in warehouses prior to departure at temperature. Yeah. Is this in a temperature-controlled aircraft that they get flown north in? Not so much per se the aircraft, but the the, uh, the containers that they're in are temperature-controlled. Okay. Yeah, so they, they maintain that one-degree temperature throughout the entire journey. And then so they get transferred to the trucks, which, of course, have refrigeration units on them. And so in terms of, of the lifespan of, say, a rose from the day it's picked in a field in Colombia, what is the expected lifespan of that flower? Yeah, yeah they, they last really only two to three weeks at the most. Okay. Uh, yeah, so this is a very time-sensitive uh you know, highly perishable product, and it, it's quite amazing uh, that the journey can be made from the fields in uh, near Bogota to Vancouver in as little as four days. So the shelf life uh, in Vancouver at the receiving and retail end could be a week or more. Yes, yeah, 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 no, Absolutely. So then what is the responsibility of the florist up here in Canada? Because I suppose they have to, they're gambling uh, that they, they're going to sell so much. They base this on previous year's experience and they place their order. Have you noticed anything different? You're the supply chain management guy here, Paul. Have you noticed anything different with the COVID uh, this year affecting the number of orders for flowers going south to, uh, from Canadian florists? Yeah, it, it, this this is an interesting thing, actually, because as you can imagine, uh, last year, or last spring, when was it? March 11, when, when the pandemic was declared, uh, this market just tanked. And, of course, spring is their busy time. Sure. Right, weddings, Easter, Mother's Day, et cetera. So, so 2020 was not a good year. Uh, the good news is this year they're anticipating big things. You know, orders are up. Uh, the, the supply is less compromised, so things are really moving. In, in fact, some industry experts are anticipating the, the biggest Valentine's Day they've had for decades. Is that right? Well, that, that would be that would come as something of a relief then uh, to a lot of again small businesses. Flower shops tend to be smallish, and if they've yeah. been having a rough year because they haven't had all of the the banquets and the weddings and the galas and all of those things to cater their flowers to, this might be a bit of a game saver for some of them. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's literally true. Yeah, yeah, I mean a, another rough year. Uh, would have been very bad, but it, things are, are definitely looking up this year for the entire industry. 
And so when and those orders, of course, again, fingers crossed and okay, I'm going to go for it and let's order this, let's order X quantity. And those are how far in advance do those orders have to be placed by the Canadian florist to the producer in Colombia? And that's a very good question. Uh, you know, it, it, it all depends. Sometimes they can go on fairly short, uh, what's called an order cycle. But I, but any given retailer or wholesaler would want to get its orders in as soon as possible. Sure. You, you know, so I, I would say a, a month is a reasonable leeway for getting orders in. So about mid-January, a lot of Canadian uh, florists uh, closed their eyes, squeezed them shut, and placed an order for something they hoped was going to pan out, and they placed some pretty pretty big orders. Yes, yeah, yeah, they did. Now, of course, any any one florist, you know, is is uh, not a huge order, but when you add them all up, it's quite large. And, and also, with, within this market, the, the smaller the uh, the florist, the more likely they might be dealing with a, a, a so-called middleman, or I suppose I should say middle person uh, entity the, these days, right? That would act as sort of a, a wholesaler. Whereas your, your large uh, grocery chain, mm-hmm. you know, they yeah they would be more likely to deal direct because they they command a certain volume. And that's the trick. You eliminate the middleman by passing a certain volume threshold, and you go directly to the producer. Then. Yeah, more direct to the producer, and, and then of course uh, you 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 save uh, some money. Sure. Yeah. Both. Yeah. Yeah. Our guest joining us from the University of Manitoba, where he is a professor of uh, supply chain management in the School of Business, is Dr. Paul Larson, who's written a piece at theconversation.com entitled "Valentine's Day: COVID nineteen wilted the flower industry, but sustainability is still a thorny issue." Now, Paul, you talked about the the impact of COVID nineteen on the Canadian floral industry and how uh, with with no no weddings or events to send flowers to or have flowers to take to uh, the industry basically uh, just cocooned for several months. But this is a big gamble for many, uh, particularly small Canadian florists who have decided that Valentine's Day is going to be different this year. It's going to be a big deal. And they got their fingers crossed that we deliver the goods as in go buy the flowers if we haven't already today. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I, I think there's a number of reasons behind this. Uh, of course, across Canada and, and the world, for that matter, uh, countries, economies are, are slowly reopening yes. uh, in the midst of this pandemic as, as caseloads go down. And, and as you can imagine, folks uh, folks are ready for some sense of normalcy. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you know, and, and uh, what's normalcy on Valentine's Day? Why? It's flowers. And that's just a perfectly normal thing to do. I want to go back to the title of the article, though. COVID-19 wilted the flower industry, and you've described that to some length as to how the the pandemic really whacked the flower industry. Uh, But the other half of that sentence, Paul, is sustainability is still a thorny issue. What do you mean by that? Oh, yeah, yes. In fact, I must say, this is what got me interested in this and in many other industries as well, uh, the, the issues of supply chain sustainability. Right. Uh, you know, this industry provides livelihoods for a lot of folks in, in Colombia, Ecuador, for that matter, our, our florists here in Canada. So a lot of, a lot of livelihoods, uh, uh, as you see, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. 
but uh, in the broader sustainability uh, aspects of sustainability, there are some issues both uh, on the social side and the environmental side. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, back in the fields in, in Colombia, uh, the industry has a reputation for low wages, long hours, uh, and indeed exposure to harmful chemicals uh, through pesticides. Uh, essentially, flowers are not regarded as food, so the regulations on pesticides are much more lax. Ah, okay. So now you also talk uh, uh, in, in this this whole thing about fair trade. Now we hear we know about fair trade coffee, Paul. That's that's a thing, especially here in Vancouver, has been for a while. What's the story on fair trade flowers? It's a very similar phenomenon. You know, it, it, essentially, the uh, the fair trade movement, uh, you know, will, will look to issues as uh, labor rights, human rights, and labor. You know, so, try to assure that the uh, the farm workers are getting a reasonable wage, have reasonable working conditions. You know, certainly, if there are pesticides used, that be uh, ways to protect folks, to protect you know, through through their gear and, and things such as that. Sure. But but it, uh, broader than that, it, it also attempts to um, you know help with economic development in the communities that these folks live in. It, it's, again, particularly in a place like Colombia or Ecuador. And how do we here at the consumer end in the Great White North know whether that bouquet we're buying for Valentine's Day is a fair trade bouquet or not? Do do florists advertise themselves as being such? Yeah, this is a good question, and and uh, they they do, and and quite frankly, they they should. You know, let let folks know that uh, that that their flowers are fair trade. Uh, what, one of the complicated issues, and this is very similar to the coffee industry as well. Uh, there is this phenomenon of you know, say I've got a coffee shop, and maybe ten percent of my beans are fair trade, and I promote myself as offering fair trade coffee. Right. Uh, you know, one might argue, well, you kind of are, but, uh, you know, you know, so I think similar for florists. So, you know, any given florist, they might have, you know, the part of the bouquets that they're offering are truly fair trade. Uh, some may not be, uh, but nonetheless, uh, it, it, it is it is a strong promotion piece. But, but so the, you know, any customer should be able to ask, just ask your florist. Sure. I, I, I like this bouquet. Is this a fair trade bouquet? And presumably they'll they'll uh, give you the goods on it. Yeah. Now that's assuming you go to a flower shop. A lot of people will just grab a bouquet uh, from uh, one of the uh, displays at a grocery store or whatever. And that's uh, uh, now the, are the the big change you mentioned earlier, Paul. That if you are a supermarket chain, you don't have to do uh, you, your prices can be a little more attractive because you eliminate the middleman by virtue of volume buys. Do supermarket chains pay attention to fair trade details? You know, I, I, I think they, they attempt to, similar to the others, but, but they probably are a bit less likely, you know, to, to focus on that side of the market. Uh, another thing about uh, some of the smaller flower shops, uh, again, not around Winnipeg these days unless you happen to have a greenhouse, but there is also a movement towards uh, local production mm-hmm. of flowers. I mean, California, for instance, produces a lot of flowers. I know that in, in uh, you know, in in BC, there's there's flower production, of course, as well. So th- this is a, a you know a, another way to uh, assure you know it's not fair trade per se, but a, a assure that the uh, 
you know, use of pesticides and things are, are more under control. Okay, uh, great stuff and, and good tips too. Now, Paul Larson, I, I'm going to throw a curveball at you here, sir, uh, because I can't let you go. You are a professor of supply chain management at the University of Manitoba. Your premier, Mr. Pallister, within the past week or so, uh, uh, struck out on his own on behalf of the province to uh, score a deal for vaccines down the road, basically saying we're not confident in the current supply chain, so we're going to try and augment that with something we can find on our own. What did you make of that as a supply chain management professor? Well, you know, I guess it's, boy, that is a bit of a curveball there, man. Well, I did my best. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know, with this vaccine being so precious in a sense and so needed, it's a reasonable move to sort of have a plan B. Right. or a, Yeah, another plan. In fact, the federal government themselves have done this, right, with ordering many many more vaccines that we probably actually need just trying to make sure that we're covered mm-hmm. so that was yeah, so it, it, he was just covering himself off then yeah it, it's not a, a, a bad plan in fact in general one thing we, we've learned in this pandemic i know we don't have a lot of time here but but there's been a, a movement over the years to what is called lean supply chains you know so a lot of companies want to find one supplier to, to provide all of their needs, yeah. all, all, all of their supplies, and also to run lean on inventory. Well, when suddenly a major disruption like a pandemic happens, that's a very dangerous strategy, sort of putting all your eggs in one basket. Um, and then, you know, we, we've seen what, what's happened in certain industries. So in, in that sense, yeah, it, it's not an unreasonable thing to do. Okay. And uh, 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 again, final question to you. I promise, final question to you. How would you rate how, would you rate how we're doing so far? And it's not a political question, I'm not, I, but just in terms of, because we know, Paul, that we're now, what, 37th or something on the list of international recipients of vaccine because we don't make our own. We're dependent on foreign sources. Uh, and, and so we're way down the list because we tried to do a deal with the Chinese early on in the game that went sideways sideways and we we spun our wheels for a whole long time trying to put that one together and when it went sideways then we joined the lineup and that's why we're 37th on somebody's list uh how would you rate overall the performance uh, of canada in, in terms of being able to care for its people and get those jabs in the arms asap yeah you know i yeah i it, it's hard for me to be too terribly critical of the government, because I, I think they had a reasonable plan, you know, in, in place to start with. There's been uh, additional disruptions in the supply chain, you know, quite aside from the uh, the, the pandemic per se. Sure. Yeah. You, know, you know. Yeah. So 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 there's there's that aspect of it, and uh, it, it, in a way, uh, we're being punished for being uh, uh, a so-called rich country or country in a pretty good position. I mean, suddenly. Canada finds itself as a rich country, but one without production capacity yeah. for the vaccines. And, and so, you know, while, while the world is saying, uh, you know, gee, we, we need to make sure a fair share of vaccines gets all, all over throughout the entire world, you know, if you're not a producer, uh, you, you, so like, like we're doing now, you might end up waiting in line a bit. So, That's right. Yeah, so I, I, I to, be, to be frank, I don't see 
what the 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 feds could have the federal government could have done all that differently in light of the way the things unfolded they did have a good plan i suppose you know one could say they didn't have enough of a backup plan but um oh you know overall i i i think uh, folks have done their best and and under the circumstances done pretty well Dr. Paul Larson, you are a good sport, sir, for letting me throw that curveball, for catching it ever so capably and throwing it right back at me. We do appreciate uh, all the information about flowers. Uh, It's a great story and a wonderful way to kick off a Valentine's Day morning show here in Vancouver. Thanks so much for this, Paul. uh, I'd love the opportunity to talk to you again. Well, my my pleasure. Stay safe out there. Happy Valentine's Day. I won't say stay warm as we do in Winnipeg. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much. Thank you. There's Dr. Paul Larson in minus 30 degree Winnipeg this morning with his article, by the way, it's up at theconversation.com. It's a great read. Valentine's Day, COVID-19 wilted the flower industry, but sustainability is still a thorny issue. For many, this Valentine's Day will be different this year. And for those on the front lines of this pandemic and their partners, it may be one filled with anxiety. And that's because for many couples where a loved one works on the front lines, either in healthcare or another essential service, one or both partners may actually be suffering from PTSD, says our next guest, who is a clinical psychologist, a psychology researcher, and an assistant professor at York University. It's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Sky Fitzpatrick to our program. Dr. Fitzpatrick, Sky, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Well, I'm well, thank you. I, I note on your, your bio that you spent some time here on the West Coast at the University of Washington and, and down in Seattle. So listening to our weather forecast from Toronto this morning with that snow mixed with rain must have brought back a few memories for you. It brought back some memories. It brought back a little bit of jealousy because it's very cold over here and I really miss those mountains. Ah, indeed. (laughs) It's great to have you with us. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about the work that you do because I'm looking at your Twitter feed now, Sky, and and you're looking for people who are uh, in the category I just described a few moments ago. You're looking for volunteers who are frontline workers uh, to uh, participate in your research on PTSD. Tell us more about, first of all, the people involved and then the work you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I study is, as you said, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I can certainly expand on that more. But what PTSD essentially is, is a disorder, a, a collection of symptoms that follow exposure to a trauma of some kind, right? Uh, witnessing death, feeling like you might die or you might be injured or something really terrible might happen to you or someone close to you. Mm-hmm. Um, for some people, people experience these symptoms after trauma that we call PTSD. It involves you know, reliving a traumatic event in some way, nightmares, flashbacks. It involves feeling like people need to constantly be on guard or on the lookout or feeling more jumpy than usual or feeling really upset when something reminds them of the trauma. And then the other thing that we see often is that people start to, because of all of that, because it's so unpleasant to constantly be in this fight or flight mode, to be feeling like you're unsafe, like a trauma is happening over and over again, mm-hmm. we see these symptoms called avoidance symptoms. So people start to avoid things that remind them of the trauma and talking about the trauma and thinking about the trauma. And that can come in the form of like, you know, I literally don't go to this place. I don't talk about this thing, but it could also look like, you know, substance use or overworking or doing dangerous things. Mm -hmm. And people start to often numb out. So they often feel kind of like 
they, their system sort of almost shuts down any negative emotions, but that gets rid of positive emotions too. So they often start to feel disconnected from people, like people can't understand them and they, they're not as interested in things as they used to be. Like all of that together is what we call PTSD. Right. And one thing I wanted to ask about, it was a, a very popular word uh, in some circles these days, is trigger. And, and you're, mm-hmm. you were discussing some of the avoidance strategies that some people dealing with PTSD or traumatic stress, uh, post-traumatic stress of some kind, who are uh, trying to deal with it in their own way rather than going outside and seeking assistance. And yet uh, they develop these avoidance strategies, but still, in, in despite this uh, wall, they try to erect around themselves things can still happen that trigger the uh, 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 spontaneously trigger uh, emotions that they are incapable of walling off you're exactly right so that's the key thing and that's why you know when we talk to people when i talk to people about what keeps ptsd going the main thing we know that keeps ptsd going is that avoidance right. is how much people try and not you know engage with things that remind them of the trauma, not talk about the trauma, not think about the trauma. And I keep it going for a number of reasons. One, like you just said, you can't actually avoid thinking about the trauma. The trauma is going to come back in your mind, whether you want to avoid it or not. If you don't go down the street, you know, you can avoid going down one street, but there will be another reminder at some point in the world. Exactly. It's kind of inevitable. Yep, you bet. Yeah. And, and the problem with that is, What's going on for people when they have PTSD is their memories and their body is reacting as if they are not safe, even though, you know, the trauma is over. It's in the past. Mm -hmm. They are safe now. So a memory of a trauma is uncomfortable. It's painful, but it's not dangerous in the same way that an actual trauma is, right? Like thinking about being in a war zone, it's not the same thing as being in a war zone. And hearing a car backfire on a street, even if it sounds like a bomb, it's not the same thing as the danger of being in a bomb you know, in a bombed zone. Sure. But when people avoid, when people don't think about the trauma, when they don't go down streets where they might be exposed to loud sounds, it's like their system doesn't get a chance to figure that out and learn that implicitly. Like they never really get the opportunity for their body to go, oh, I can have a memory or I can hear a loud sound and still be safe. So they get stuck in this place of feeling like they're under threat or like danger is happening um, when it's not. Dr. Fitzpatrick, is there any difference between the type of or the impact of the traumatic event? Uh, because you mentioned a war zone. And, and, and when it comes to PTSD, most of us tend to think of people who suffer from PTSD as being either veterans of the military or mm-hmm. veterans of the police service and, and mm-hmm. uh, tend, therefore, to associate their PTSD with really traumatic events, bombs being one of them. Yeah. So is there any difference in the way these people deal with their, uh, their stress than uh, people who are uh, frontline workers? in healthcare who deal with death on perhaps a far more regular basis than any soldier ever would. Yeah. So I think that's that's what's kind of interesting about what's going on with COVID right now. Is yeah. On the one hand, yes, of course the traumas are different. Like, of course, being in a war zone is different from being in an emergency room or an ICU. Although Nowadays, you know, when people are feeling like their healthcare systems are really overwhelmed, probably a lot of the stress feels very real to the people who are working in those environments. Sure. 
But what's amazing or interesting is that the symptoms, the specific PTSD symptoms that we see after trauma are actually the same. Right. And the way we go about treating it is the same. So we are starting to see, yes, of course we see elevated rates of PTSD in military and first responders because they're exposed to more trauma than other people. Sure. But we are starting to see elevated rates of PTSD in healthcare workers as well. Mm-hmm. And some research has suggested that the healthcare workers who are working in COVID units, like where they're interacting with more patients with COVID, are experiencing higher PTSD symptoms than the ones that aren't. I would think that uh, would be the case without uh, without much uh, argument at all. Uh, the uh, uh, do we know uh, that the culture of the military and indeed some of the police service is is one in which people who are having uh, stress and traumatic uh, in incidents and issues typically don't come forward with that because it's not a very macho thing to do and there's that mm-hmm. there's that thing that has to be broken through so there's this resistance from soldiers is this is there a same the same degree of oh I'm okay I, I'm I'm really okay from frontline workers or because they're in the health industry is there some greater understanding sky that they actually mm-hmm. do need help and aren't are, are a little more forthcoming about seeking it out That's a really interesting question. And, you know, I don't think that we really know at this point how the healthcare culture might impact PTSD. I could really see that going in two different ways. Like, what we know is that after a trauma, we experience a trauma, it's actually normal to experience PTSD symptoms. Most of us, when a trauma happens to us, will experience PTSD symptoms in, like, the weeks and months following a traumatic event. But Mm -hmm. they tend to kind of naturally go away on their own. And when they don't, that's what we call PTSD. So people kind of get stuck in their recovery. So if you're in an environment where a lot of people are experiencing this, like a lot of healthcare workers are experiencing the same thing, there might be some really nice camaraderie there. Like people can share, hey, I felt this too, and talk about it. And again, anything that works against avoidance, opening it up and sharing with each other is going to promote recovery from trauma. But if it's an environment where people are saying to themselves, I'm struggling, but everyone else has the same thing, so there's no point in me talking about it. Like, I'm not special. I don't want to complain. That kind of thinking will lead people to sort of shut down, and that gets in the way of trauma recovery. Dr. Sky Fitzpatrick is our guest. We're talking about PTSD and the work that she as a clinical psychologist is involved in. And Sky, you're looking for volunteers. You've got a project going on that involves not only frontline healthcare workers and first responders, but also their partners, because you're interested in the effect not only of PTSD on the individual, but also the other people in that person's life. Tell us more about this study that you're up to. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we used to think about PTSD as an individual problem, right? Because somebody experiences a trauma, they develop PTSD symptoms. Right. But what we know now from tons of research is that actually one of the best or most clear predictors that indicates who is going to develop PTSD after a trauma and who isn't is their social support. It's the quality of their relationships. And the other thing we started to notice is that PTSD has a huge impact on the partners of people with PTSD. I bet. You know, the sim- yeah, exactly. Like the symptoms I described earlier, if somebody is having nightmares or flashbacks, that impacts partners, right? Partners might have to sleep in separate beds. They might have to intervene when someone's having a flashback. 
they might seem, feel like their loved one seems distracted when when pers- people with PTSD are feeling, you know, more angry or irritable or on guard than they used to. There's often more conflict. And in general, the way PTSD kind of just numbs people out, it makes it hard for people to feel connected. Right. Because Emotions are like the glue that holds relationships together. All of our relationships, it's sharing how we feel. And what PTSD wants to do is shut people down, is get people to stop talking, to avoid, and to share less and less and less with their loved ones. Mm -hmm. So a while ago, one of my collaborators developed, in response to all of this research, developed a treatment for PTSD that's delivered both to the person with PTSD and their romantic partner, the Uh couple's treatment. Okay. And the goal was to basically treat PTSD and enhance relationship functioning at the same time. And it turns out that worked. It it did do that. It both treated PTSD and it made relationships better. And it improved the mental health and well-being of the partners of people with PTSD. So we were all excited about that. But then we realized, well, in-person therapies are a little bit hard to access nowadays. No kidding. You have to go to a city where there's like specialists and they cost money, et cetera, right? And now with COVID, it's like no one's coming into therapy anymore anyway. Well, that's true. So, Exactly. So we've spent the last two years developing a new online treatment that's based on this therapy for couples, wherein one of the members of the couples has PTSD. And we're specifically testing it to see if it is helpful to couples where the person with PTSD is a military member, a veteran, a first responder, or a healthcare worker. And our goal, like the design of the program, it's really designed for people to both treat PTSD and enhance their relationships, but they can do it from anywhere in the comfort of their own home. And in the study we're doing right now, they get access to the intervention for free um, because it's a study and we, we actually pay people to do research assessments for it. So that's what we're doing right now to see if it, to really see if it works. And our- <laughs> Are you soliciting volunteers, and must they be from Ontario? Are folks from B.C. okay to be part of the study as well? Canada-wide, so anybody can come. BC Good for you. more than welcome. We can accommodate those time differences, too. So anybody who's interested in, in doing this or thinks it might be helpful for them or their loved ones can go to couplehopes.com. The word is couple, like, like a couple, and hopes, plural, so H-O-P-E-S.com to sign up. Okay, and, uh, and, and and there's a no charge uh, involved, uh, and so it's just uh, a couple hopes, right? The Hope Couples Project, right? That's right. So hope stands for helping overcome PTSD and enhance satisfaction. And you're right, there's no charge involved, and um, people get access to our program, and they get access to a coach who helps them get the most out of the program. And really the goal of this is just to test we have some preliminary data that suggests that, yes, this program is working. It is helping people. And we're just trying to test that further, especially because we think that the rates of PTSD are probably rising from COVID. No question. Especially in these groups. Yeah, I, I would agree with that 100%, Sky. Do you find or have you found since you've begun this study that as people come forward to volunteer uh, to participate, many of them are not those individuals with PTSD, but in fact, they are the partners of those individuals anxious to get something going. Yes, that is a very common thing. So sometimes it's the person with PTSD, but often what's going on is the partners are saying like, hey, like this affects me too. Like I know there's something going on with my loved one and I felt kind of shut out of the treatment up to this point. Like I don't really know how to be helpful or 
how to talk about this. Like, I know something happened, but I don't know what it was, you know, and I feel like it's impacting my well-being as well. And so one of the beautiful things that treatments like this and the treatment that it was designed or based on can offer is this ability to have people come together to fight PTSD as opposed to doing it alone. Like, that's what we really want to do. We want to get people to join together and push back on avoidance, push back on PTSD as a team. Ah, okay. So and that website address again, please, if you wouldn't mind, Dr. Fitzgerald, this is important stuff and uh, repeating yourself is a good thing at this hour of the day. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's Couple Hopes. So C-O-U-P-L-E-H-O-P-E-S.com. That was a good spelling test for me. <laughs> <laughs> and there's your picture right there on the front page. Couples, hopes, a couple hopes, singular couple, plural hopes, couplehopes.com. And you will be connected with Dr. Sky Fitzpatrick and her team at York University. Thanks very much for this, Sky. Happy Valentine's Day to you. And I would love the opportunity to speak to you again as this goes forward. My pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a great Valentine's Day. You betcha. There's Dr. Sky Fitzpatrick, clinical psychologist and professor at York University in Toronto. Couple hopes. Com. Our guest is Jason Clemens, executive vice president of the Fraser Institute and author of an opinion piece, co-author of an opinion piece entitled, Trudeau has presided over the worst business investment growth of the past five prime ministers. Well, there you go. Jason Clemens, welcome back. It's been a while. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. It's good to have you with us. You and a couple of co-authors have uh, put out a couple of uh, pieces recently, one in the Globe and Mail and the other uh, in the Post Media Group, uh, uh, talking about business investment. And uh, we're hearing about, you know, a budget perhaps sometime next month, Jason, for the first time in quite a long time. Uh, and we're hearing about uh, the, the $100 billion uh, borrowing s- scheme that has been set up to provide for funding for uh, all sorts of uh, presum- presumably pre-election goodies, but we're not very aware. I don't know that many Canadians are aware of any kind of business plan that may be included in a budget. Are you aware of a business plan? Uh, no, no. As we uh, outlined in the piece in the post uh, that you mentioned, uh, one of the concerns that we have is that business leaders, uh, economists, um, uh, even some some academics uh, have been raising concerns about the deterioration in Canada's competitiveness and the fact that we're just not an attractive place uh, to invest and do business uh, relative to our competitors since about 2018. And if you look at government policy, in fact, nothing has really changed. In fact, it's really been more of the same uh, ever since 2016 in terms of the policy direction. So, um, I would say our expectation is, in fact, that there are going to be some policies in the upcoming budget that will do further damage to our attractiveness uh, for business investment and entrepreneurship. Uh, an example of that is it, it, it's widely expected now that the federal government is going to increase the capital gains tax. Um, that would certainly, again, make us less competitive, less attractive uh, for business investment. And this is at a time when not only do we need to put the foundations in place for economic recovery, but most economists, including the governor of the Bank of Canada, have said that we need to be more competitive uh, and, and business investment, a rebound in business investment, needs to be the foundation for that rebound and long-term recovery. So, unfortunately, I just see a federal government that is, is disinterested in the issue of 
um, private sector business investment and entrepreneurship right now. Yeah, and you quote in your article, it's interesting you mentioned 2018, Jason, because you quote then-Finance Minister Bill Morneau in 2018 saying, quote, if businesses don't invest to create great jobs, then we won't have the future we want in our country. So he knew uh, uh, from a policy perspective and from an understanding of the economy perspective that that's, that's, that's an important a cog in the wheel. Uh, he seems to be the only member of that group that he's no longer a member of, but at the time, he seemed to be about the only member of that group that had a handle on all of that. Um, well, that that actually may be uh, overstating uh, Mr. Morneau's understanding, or at least commitment uh, to the need for business investment, because again, um, if you if you look at what Mr. Morneau did as finance minister, you'd be hard pressed to find anything that he did um, that would actually have improved or created an environment for business investment, entrepreneurship. Uh, and so, again, he may, he obviously made those statements, but um, again, you're ju- you're just hard pressed to find policies that this federal government has implemented that are conducive or even encouraging of business investment and entrepreneurship. Well, let's, let's, let's step back a little bit and take a look at another piece that you and your co-authors wrote uh, on the same day, or at least it was released on the same day, comparing pre-recession economic performance, Chrétien versus Trudeau. And we're talking Justin Trudeau, not his dad here. But now, to be specific, uh, and uh, talking about a business plan or a distinct lack thereof, you you got down and did some, some, some good homework homework on this. And so we have a concrete example that most people listening can remember clearly. So Jason, walk us through what the Chrétien government did versus what the Trudeau government has done during its uh, last four years with respect to a business plan. Sure. So uh, basically, we released a study on Thursday uh, of last week. And then, as you mentioned, we had a piece in the Globe and a, a piece in the Financial Post. And we have another piece running in Atlantic Canada. Um, the piece in the globe that you mentioned took a part of the data from the study and just compared the Chrétien era with the Trudeau era. Right. And the, the key reason for that is obviously these are two liberal governments. Exactly. But the contrast in policy is quite stark. So the, the Chrétien government purposefully moved to balance the budget. They then in, imposed quite strict discipline that they would balance the budget every year, which resulted in a reduction in debt. Um, and most of that was done by spending cuts and then spending restraint. They then implemented a number of critically important tax cuts to make Canada more competitive. And indeed, at the end of the Chrétien era, going into the Harper era, um, we were largely competitive on most taxes, save for really personal income taxes, uh, where we, we remained uncompetitive. So you, you, then, you then contrast those policies with what Mr. Trudeau did in 2016 coming into power, which was we are going to spend quite a bit of more money on a whole bunch of things, none of which are really prioritized. All of that is going to be financed by uh, new borrowing, and we're going to raise taxes on most Canadians. So you contrast those two different sets of very different policies, and mm-hmm. then you look at, well, how did the economy respond? Uh, income growth per person under the Chrétien government was 4.4 times the rate of growth under Trudeau. Uh, if you look at private sector job creation, uh, Trudeau's rate was less than half the Chrétien rate. Mm. If you look at average growth in business investment, Chrétien had the highest growth in business investment of the five, the last five prime ministers. 
Um, Justin Trudeau actually has averaged negative, so not even a growing uh, rate of, of increase in business investment, but actually declining business investment. And so I'm certainly happy to get into more specific and, and give your audience some numbers. But uh, in general, you have not only a stark contrast in the policies, but you have an equally a stark contrast in economic performance with the Chrétien government having the strongest economy of the last five, easily the strongest economy of the last five prime ministers. Uh, and Mr. Trudeau, unfortunately for Canadians, easily having the weakest economy of the last five prime ministers. Now, under the Chrétien government and during this time that you cite uh, for uh, such a stellar economic performance, especially comparatively speaking, was the prime minister or was the finance minister during that entire period Paul Martin? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Paul Martin, yes, yes. So here's a shipping executive who has run a large multinational company responsible for thousands and thousands of employees and a, a global uh, client base. And that's the person who's running the finance ministry during a time of discipline and growth. So who's running the Canadian finance ministry now? Well, that would be uh, Ms. Freeland. Um, prior to her, it was Mr. Morneau. Um, now, I think to be to be quite frank, much of the decisions made for the Department of Finance, um, I think, are made in the in the Prime Minister's office. Uh, this this government under Prime Minister Trudeau is even more centralized in terms of decision making and control, right? Than even the Harper government was. Yeah, Harper was considered to be quite the control freak, wasn't he? It? it was. It became kind of a, a, a almost a, 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 a part of his identity. Well, you know, you got to. He, he's a micromanager. He's crazy, uh, and and yet the degree of control from the PMO, from the Prime Minister's office under Harper, was considerably lower than under the current regime. Yes. Yeah. I, I would. I mean, I think. I think by general observation, I think most people would agree. Uh, that since, let's probably say the early 2000s, um, at the end of the Chrétien era, you just saw more and more concentration of power and decision-making in the Prime Minister's office, uh, and just less discretion, less decision-making by cabinet ministers in the ministries. What was it uh, specifically, if you can pinpoint any, we need to take a break, but I, I can't let this part of the conversation go with it before we do. So, Jason, what specifically did Mr. Martin and the finance department do that stimulated the kind of growth in business investment, business investing in itself, that the Trudeau government simply hasn't come to yet? Yeah, so it's a great question. I, I think there's a couple of things. The first is that by balancing the budget uh, and making a clear commitment that we would balance the budget in the future and reduce our debt, two very important things happened. One, the Canadian economy signaled that we are a much more stable place for entrepreneurs and businesses because there was no threat of tax increases down the road right. because we, we were in a balanced budget position. Secondly, the government prioritized spending. And they said, look, there are just things that we shouldn't be doing. We probably never should have been doing them. And we're getting out of those areas. Like, the, you know, as an example, uh, the Department of Industry, uh, the subsidy portion of the Department of Industry was cut by 50%. So the federal government said, we are going to stop, to a great extent, subsidizing business. Mm -hmm. um, then what they did, once we got into a balanced budget position, is bring in a whole slew of tax cuts critically important were business tax cuts that made us not only competitive, but indeed in many situations, particularly with respect to the United States, 
we actually had a tax advantage on the business side. And so it, it was those, I think, those twin principles of creating a stable, hospitable environment so that entrepreneurs and businesses can do what they do best, mm-hmm. compete uh, for business, and secondly, make sure that we're tax competitive. And on both of those issues, the Trudeau government has gone in the opposite direction. Well, if there's anything that every Canadian knows, every Canadian knows, we're $400 billion and counting in debt, and they've got another $100 billion set aside to buy the next election. So that's half a trillion. With that kind of debt just roiling around out there, every Canadian knows, Jason, tax increases have to come. Obviously not until the next election is over, but they are inevitable at this rate. It's it's just absolutely unavoidable. Would you agree? No, that's right. I mean, that that's one of the uh, areas of uncertainty that has uh, increased, I would say, precipitously, actually, under this government, which is that given the state of the structural deficit, that means even in a strong economy, the federal government is spending more than it can bring in with current taxes. Yep. But, that the signal to business and to entrepreneurs and Canadians is at some point, we are going to have to raise tax rates. And, and that, un- that uncertainty discourages investment, discourages entrepreneurs who are already in Canada from doing more, but more importantly, discourages people from coming to Canada, either through investments or actually moving here. Jason Clemens is joining us the, this half hour. Mr. Clemens is the executive vice president at the Fraser Institute, an economist by profession. And Jason, I'm interested in your professional opinion about the slogan. It's Build Back better adopted by the government of Canada after a trip to Davos, where they, uh, the, the hoi polloi gather every year to discuss the future of humanity as uh, through their uh, rose-colored lenses. And so now build back better is a popular uh, phrase, a slogan that uh, is being adopted elsewhere on the planet, but it's a big deal here in Canada, according to the Trudeau government. What do you understand that to mean? Uh, well, I, I'm, unfortunately, I, I think it's more than likely going to mean that we are going to have more policy initiatives based on the imagination of the federal government of what it can do, um, rather than the reality of what governments can practically do. And let, let me just jump into that if I can for a second. Okay. So if you look at, for example, the major initiative made in 2018 by the Liberal government, um, which was the Innovation Initiative, um, major over well over a billion dollars was going to be spent to create clusters in five Canadian cities, and it was supposed to be a uh, a way by which to facilitate technological clusters and economic development. Right. Okay. Of that money, only twenty nine percent has been spent. So, in other words, seventy one percent of the amount of money that should have been spent has not been spent yet. And of the money spent, fifty six percent of it is on administration. Um, and, actually, and, and actually not program, actually not investing. And so I, I just think sometimes, particularly with this prime minister, he has an imagination of what he would like the government to be able to do, which is quite divorced from what the government can actually do in practical terms. I'll, I'll just give you another, or your listeners, another quick example. Okay. We are now in the sixth year of the federal government spending over a billion dollars to try to fix the way it pays its employees. Now, if you think about just the technology initiative, or you think, you think about just this mundane task of trying to pay your employees and the struggle that the federal government has had to try to do those things, 
But then the federal government is now on the cusp of saying, we are going to redesign the Canadian economy. Um, Specifically, we are going to reduce our involvement in fossil fuel industry, Mm -hmm. and we are going to push the economy um, and jobs and investment towards a green economy. Um, At the same time, they're now looking at a national pharmacare plan. They're looking at a national daycare program, plus somewhere between 70 and $100 billion in quote-unquote stimulus spending after the recession is supposedly going to be done. Um, and I just, to me, those two things don't reconcile with one another, that, that the government somehow believes it has an ability to design a national daycare program right. rather than local entrepreneurs and families, perhaps the local government or provincial governments. Um, certainly, when you look at the mess of the healthcare system, a large part of that sits at the federal government's um, and the Canada Health Act and the kind of restrictions it places on the provincial government. And you know, Jason, also that there is a sentiment fairly widely held within the Liberal caucus uh, to nationalize long-term care centers. Uh, and we've seen in the wake of the pandemic with our, our own eyes how uh, and very starkly how badly some of those places have been run. And so naturally, only the government could possibly do a better job. And there's a sentiment for that. The other part of, of, of this is building back better stuff is has to do, and this is a, a penchant liberal governments particularly fall into, and that's taking a big whack of money and playing favorites, giving money to groups and that you mentioned the green agenda. And, of course, there'll be a huge parade and a long line of, of people with their hands out looking for money to quali- to build into the green agenda. But they're going to pick favorites. No, absolutely. But, uh, I mean, we've already, we've already seen that um, in terms of uh, a number of the initiatives the Liberal government has undertaken since coming into office in, in 2016. Um, I, I guess part of the question, which is an interesting one, is when we say build back better who are we talking about in terms of building back and and who is best positioned to build back? And I think the evidence is just clear that, and certainly that's the experience of the Chrétien government, um, that Canada and most countries do best when they create an environment within which entrepreneurs and business owners and families and individuals can make decisions in their own interests. The Trudeau government has a vision for a much different build back mm-hmm. better, which is it will be designed and executed in Ottawa, which, quite frankly, Ottawa is very different than Vancouver, British Columbia or Calgary, Alberta. But we're going to have a one size fits all for any of the initiatives that will be announced in next month's federal budget. Uh, Jason, a uh, final question to you here, and it's so good to have you with us this morning. As we look ahead to that uh, budget, a, a, a sometime in March is what we're being told. Uh, what is the, what, what's the thing you're looking for? The, what's the clue that you're looking for the most? Uh, well, let, let me give you two answers. So one, because I'm an economist, uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a, a geek side to me, so to speak, which is um, the economic assumptions upon which the budget will be based. Um, and so does the federal government, particularly uh, under this new finance minister, continue the old practice of very optimistic assumptions, um, no caution in terms of the amount of deficits and debt that are being taken on? And the other part? Uh, so the other part will be uh, just the specifics of uh, the or the connection to the throne speech, which uh, the throne speech in the fall indicated national pharmacare, national daycare, major remaking of the Canadian economy towards a green economy. 
And so the question then is just what what actually is included in the budget and the degree to which the federal government will increase tax rates now, to be honest with Canadians, which is if the federal government is going to spend more, they have to tax more. Um, I, I know that they are interested, and that's my expectation, that they want to spend considerably more money. Uh, unfortunately for Canadians and certainly the next generation, I think all of that new spending will be financed by debt mm. uh, rather than taxes. No, that's not the, not the kind of news we want to hear on Valentine's morning, Jason, but it's the <laughs> truth. And we always appreciate the fact that you just give it straight from the shoulder every time we ask you to. Thanks for joining us this morning. Have a wonderful Valentine's Day. And we'll talk between now and the budget pretty much guaranteed. My pleasure. Thank you. There's Jason Clemens, Executive Vice President of the Fraser Institute. It's a pleasure to welcome our next two guests to the pro- guests rather to the program. Uh, they are part of a story that has actually gone national. It happened right here in Vancouver at Langara College, and we found out about it uh, from Langara College and received more news about it from the National Post. For crying out loud, uh, Alana Olson is a tutor in the Musqueam Langara Indigenous Upgrading Program, and Karen Dan is the first graduate of the Musqueam Langara Indigenous Upgrading Program. Uh, ladies, good morning, happy Valentine's, and welcome to the program. Hello, and thank you. Good morning, thank you. Good morning, Karen. Alana, why don't we start with you, first of all, and tell us a little bit more about the program, and then Karen will get you to tell your story as how you came to be in it and go through it. But Alana, what's the program about? Um, so the program is called the Indigenous Upgrading Program, and it's a partnership between uh, Snowyeth Lalem Langara College and Musqueam, um, and we help non-graduated Indigenous adults obtain their high school dogwood. Um, and yeah, Karen is just recently the first graduate of the program and has an amazing story to share. Right. So this this program allows First Nations people to get their high school equivalency uh, st- uh, certification, right? Yes, exactly. So, Karen, uh, you're, uh, well, okay, I'll just say it straight. It's not a nice thing to say on Valentine's Day to a woman, but you're a little older than a typical uh, uh, graduate. Yes, I am. (laughs) And congratulations (laughs) to you, by the way. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Tell us your story, Karen, please. Um, Well, I've always wanted to get my grade 12 and it's actually because of my late mother, um, who had always wished for her children to graduate. Um, and now, you know, uh, over 40 years now, uh, she's been gone. And it's always been in the back of my mind of uh, what she said. And today, um, when I actually got into the program, um, I would, I work numerous jobs, mm-hmm. and so in between working and um, you know getting my grade twelve, um, I had not thought I would actually be able to finish it. But with the support of the Langara um, instructors, very supportive. And that program really was a stepping stone for me um, because uh, so it was really quite crazy, actually, because I was in the program, started out in the program and then 
um, lo and behold, I get a letter from our band telling me that I have, I can actually start um, my program. So I'm working at getting my grade 12, have a couple of weeks to get my uh, papers in order right, to, yeah. because our band funds us for our education. Oh, that's good. So I get, you know, so this is probably two weeks um, in December of, I guess it would be 2019. So I go and I, I'm getting my papers. So I'm doing two programs at the same time working. <laughs> so you, were, were you doing night school then, uh, Karen, uh, with, uh, the, w- because you were working, or were you working part-time and able to take some classes during the day? No, I would, I would go in at my lunch hour. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, work for, you know, do my studies. Um, and because we work um, split, not split shifts, but we had, you know, night shifts. So some days I could go during the day. Um, or I'd go at my lunch hour if I was working during the day to get my schoolwork and I would get work from the instructors and if I needed any help, then I would get it that way. Oh, great. So you started this in December of 2019 and how recently did you graduate, Karen? So it took, I'm, I'm just trying to establish a timeline. It took you just a little over a year to complete the program then? Well, I started in October of 2019. Oh, okay. Um, but it wasn't, and I graduated actually in December uh, 2020. Well, congratulations again. Alana, how many other students are involved in this program, and do you see it expanding going forward? Uh, there's about 14 students in it right now. Um as for expansion, I think that's another conversation involving a lot of stakeholders and funding questions and things like that. Right, but uh, um, there, it, it has a future. It has legs. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm really excited about it. I've seen some like incredible progress. We've got a couple of students in the program also starting at Langara College this summer, mm-hmm. um, and that's been another really exciting development. Interesting um, stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's been really great. So, Karen, when when you you talked about going back to school and starting back in October of 2019, how much schooling had you had as a child before returning as a very mature adult? Um, I did up to grade nine. Okay. Um, my mother had passed away um, a couple of years before that. So um, she was, you know, always our support, always uh, the parent that got us to school, you know, made sure we went to school every day, mm-hmm. you know, and then losing that support really made a huge difference. Um, and then uh, after she passed away, every, you know, all of us were separated um, and the glue that uh, kept everything together was gone. Where'd you go to school? Um, well, elementary, I was pretty much in residential school. Okay, what part of the province? Uh, in Shelt. 
Okay. And then I was in school in North Vancouver and in Vancouver um, until I dropped out of school. And then um, I've been taking numerous programs over the years, though, you know, because in the back of my mind, I kept saying, okay, I'm going to get this, <laughs> you know, but it never happened. And, you know, um, my mom, those words live in my head. Sure. You know, and, but today I am very um, grateful she put those words in my head, I guess. I said, you're never too old to, um, you know, move forward with your education. Um, you always can learn. What a great what a great attitude, Karen. Now that you have that uh, the the GED equivalency, your high school equivalency, uh, and you are uh, you're an accomplished graduate now. Do you have any further plans to take more courses to pursue even more education? Actually, I am right now. Good for you. Um, I'm at MVIT right now. I'm in my third term. Um, in my first year for my associate's degree. And what uh, what faculty? Um, what are you studying? I'm, I'm doing the associate's degree, then I'm going in general arts. Okay. And then I'm, I'm still contemplating on if I'm going to go for the social work um, degree or not. Um, there's so many avenues that I want to go down now that I'm... Now that the doors are open, right? Yeah. So, Alana, t- talk to us a little bit about the other students that are in the program, because Karen is clearly mapping out uh, a second, whole second half of her life here uh, in terms of academics. What is, uh, uh, is this typical, the, uh, the young adults or older adults who come to the program for their high school equivalency do, in fact, many, in many cases, have plans to go on and, and, and uh, further their education beyond that? Yeah, I would say the vast majority of them do for sure. Um, and that's kind of another thing, another goal of our program is to sort of connect them with that next step. Sure. Um, there's a couple that are more interested in going into trades and pursuing careers there. Um, several are going to college. Again, we've got three that are starting this summer at Langara College. Um, so, yeah, there, there's there's quite a range. And a lot of them, um, a lot of the, most of them that I've worked with so far, like, really haven't left school for a lack of ability. It's been other life circumstances sure. that drove them out of school. So right. The skill, the ability is very, very, very much there. It's just been kind of life circumstances that have prevented them from graduating high school. Right. And I guess in a case like Karen's, you would recognize that almost instantly. And if anything, just encourage, because Karen was the one that showed up uh, at, uh, late in life, so to speak. And no no slight intended here, Karen, but you're 60. And for crying out loud, not a lot of people go to high school when they're 60. And yet you did because you fulfilled that lifelong promise to your mom. And when Alana saw all of that, all of those ingredients going on, uh, must have been just one button to press, Alana, to get uh, just open up all of those uh, learning ports all over again, right? Yeah, yeah. Karen's been like an incredibly motivated student. Um, she was working three jobs while she was working on her high school. Mm. Um, she's been so, so motivated. COVID actually helped her, I think, because we went online and we became asynchronous. Um, so she was able to, like, she might be working a night shift 
uh, at work and she'd be able to do a little bit of schoolwork at night. And right. To me. And um, that worked really, really well for Karen. And, and Karen, that, that's the other part that I forgot. You you took your, your, your GED or your equivalency during COVID. So you didn't even get to go to class like uh, you, you had to do a lot of Zooming to get through this, didn't you? Yes, I did. Um, <laughs> and like Alana said, it was probably a godsend at that time because it just gave me, you know, that time to be able to log in on Zoom to be able to um, ask questions, you know, find out what was next, you know. Well, good for you. Uh, Karen, congratulations on being the first graduate of the Langara Indigenous Upgrading Program. Our hats are off to you this morning. Alana Olson, keep up the good work. You've got an outstanding first graduate. Keep up, keep churning them out. We're looking forward to talking to more. Awesome. Thank you so much. Happy Valentine's Day to both of you. You too. All right. Same to you. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Alana. Here's a quote from our next guest, a direct quote. We are living in an environment with unprecedented low interest rates and all of the ingredients for inflation as the government prints money to address the pandemic. The financial decisions we need to make today are often different than those our parents made back in the 70s and 80s, and we need to challenge our thinking. This from the author of a brand new book called A Fighting Chance, the high High school finance education everyone deserves. Here's Doug Allen from North Vancouver. Doug, good morning. Welcome to the program. Happy Valentine's. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. You're a professional guy. You've been in the in the uh, business. You work for a real estate firm. You're a vice president. Uh, you've got a great career going. Why on earth did you turn left, uh, a sharp turn left, and head up this particular street and attempt to take on financial illiteracy? Well, financial literacy has been near and dear to me for a, a while, just having been through you know, formal financial education at McGill and getting into public accounting and now commercial real estate. And it's given me quite an advantage in my own personal financial management. And, and I just started to feel that it was unfair that, that I had this advantage over everybody else that doesn't choose a career in finance. And so I wanted to t- start to share some of the knowledge and skills that I've picked up over the last, say, 10 to 15 years and try and hand it down to people who can use it most, which is young people. Yeah, well, you know, the subtitle of a, of a fighting chance, Doug, is the high school finance education everyone deserves, and I add, but never got. Why on That's earth right. do we emerge, do millions of Canadians emerge from high school, aged probably 17 or 18, utterly financially illiterate? Absolutely. Uh, it's a good question. I don't know the answer to it, but I do know that um, time is the number one ally of the young, right? It's the power of compounding. You know, when you, when you start to invest money and grow your wealth at a young age, you have so much more time for that wealth to grow. You bet. And if you, and if you wait until you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s to really put meaningful effort into growing your wealth, it can often be too late. Can I go back to that quote that I uh, used at the beginning of the show to introduce you, the, the, the part about how we need to challenge our thinking because the circumstances that uh, decision-making occurred under back in the 70s and 80s versus those that decisions are being taken today are dramatically different. So talk about challenging our thinking. What, what needs to be challenged, Doug? Sure. So a good example of that is around around interest rates, right? I mean, back in the 1980s, you had you had mortgage mortgage rates in the in the teens, right? Mm-hmm. And and now people are getting five year mortgages for less than two percent, which is really 
on or below inflation. So the concept that you want to pay down your mortgage, for example, as quickly as possible, does that make sense anymore? Um, does it make sense to put money in a, in a bank account when you earn 0.1% interest on it and inflation is eating away at your money? Yeah. These are, you know, notions that made a lot of sense uh, a couple decades ago, but may not anymore. I can remember getting our first mortgage on a home that we built in 1985, Doug, and our financial advisor at the time said, shop around, you know, be aggressive. If you can get anything under 12%, you're home free. So we got one for 11.75 and thought we died and gone to heaven. Amazing. Compare that to 1.75% in 2021. Absolutely. So does it, does it make sense to pay down debt that costs only 1.75% when inflation hovers around 2%? Really just, you're really just avoiding a 1.75% interest charge. When is it, is it easier to find a, a, a rate of return on an investment that would produce more than 1.75%? I think mm-hmm. that is possible. And there's a spread there that people don't necessarily know is an opportunity. Yeah, and you also talked about uh, about uh, in the savings account, and we have a device created by the Harper government, uh, reduced somewhat, but nonetheless still left alive by the Trudeau government, called the tax-free savings account. It's a vehicle uh, through which people can invest money uh, and hopefully realize a profit somewhere down the road, and whatever profits are realized remain uh, tax-free. And yet, as it turns out, and I'm sure you know this better than I, most most Canadians, Doug, use that tax-free savings account as a savings account. Yes, that's always been my, been my criticism of the TFSA is, is the use of the word savings. I've always thought it should be called a tax-free investment account. Right. Because you, you can invest in ETFs, mutual funds, other higher income producing assets than just cash. Well, that's the whole point, isn't it? And, and, and I, I, what I don't understand is, is um, uh, there's a lot I don't understand about the money biz. Uh, one of which, though, is why people in it aren't more aggressive about informing us about the nature of things like the TFSA. This is a gift from God if you can understand uh, that if, if you invest in the right things and, and it just goes through the roof for you, all of that profit is 100% yours tax-free for as long as it lasts. That could be a while. And, and yet there's not that kind of enthusiasm for investing in the TFSA that there should be. Or, do you, or am I just talking to the wrong people here, Doug? No, I think you're right. And to me, a lot of, of the stem for that is financial literacy. It's not giving people the knowledge they need early in life to understand what those gifts really are. And so my, and so my book talks about the first thing you need to do as a Canadian is, is max out your tax-advantaged accounts, like your TFSA, your RRSP, your RESP if you have children. Right. And take, take advantage of those tax deferrals or, or tax savings because they, as, like investment returns, they compound. And that's where the real money is, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, if you look at um, a dollar invested at a, say, 10% rate of return over 50 years, it becomes $118, right? If you invest it over 30 years, it becomes something like $28. So the, the snowball effect of compounding is so incredible. And it's why it's so important to get started as soon as possible. 
Let's uh, let's talk about what's happened recently. And of course, I'm sure, especially of this book having just been published, I'm sure you sat on the sidelines watching this bizarre show over the last couple of weeks, not even scratching your head, probably going, well, I can see this one coming a few miles off. And I'm talking about the GameStop thing, the Robin Hood, the, the hoodies, as they got called, these amateur investors from all over the world who thought they could outsmart hedge fund operators and drive stocks uh, beyond anything resembling a reasonable valuation uh, through the roof. And now they're trying it with some of the cryptocurrencies. This herd mentality that got so many people involved uh, just a few short weeks ago. What did you make of all of that, Doug? Well, uh, to me, it was a pretty predictable recipe for disaster. I mean, when you have a stock price that shoots so far beyond a valuation that makes sense yeah. based on the fundamentals of the company, that always returns to the mean, right? And, and you could see on the wall that people were going to get hurt, and they did. You know, the, the stock fell precipitously. And, and so really, um, one of the things we need to be very focused on is you know, proper due diligence on, on our investments and, and doing homework and making sure that money you're putting to work in a certain company is based on research and not based on speculation, momentum, and basically gambling. Well, and there was a lot of social media going to get the man, uh, sticking it to the man, all that kind of rhetoric going on that really fueled a lot of the initial part of that. For sure. And, and I understand that. Yeah, sort of the activist investment and um, you know, people trying to go out there and, and make money. But the stock market is a very complex and can be dangerous place. And so to, to throw money at something like that that's really just based on uh, a social media following, it's very risky. Um, and, and you don't want to be taking risks like that with any meaningful part of your wealth. Did it surprise you that the lion's share of those involved in, the, in this wild stuff in the past couple of weeks are young people? Not at all. Not at all. And I think apps like Robinhood are great to get people involved in the markets and learning about investing and putting money to work. Right. But it doesn't give them excuse an excuse not to learn the knowledge behind why you make an investment decision. Why do you invest in this company versus that company? What are the risks involved? How do you stop? How do you how do you manage your risk by putting in stop loss orders and things like that that you really need to know about before you're putting money at risk? Doug Allen is with us. Mr. Allen is a chartered professional accountant and author of a new book called A Fighting Chance. And he joins us from North Vancouver. Doug, we were talking before the break about uh, the Robin Hood, uh, the fiasco that went down with uh, millions. I read a lot of stuff in the UK where young British people were getting involved in all of this. And it leads me to the other part of the question in terms of financial literacy. Uh, A lot of young people, and, and certainly they are the target of the ads, a lot of people are being targeted by companies who provide financial information through algorithms. And I'm wondering, if you don't know a great deal about finance in the first place, is getting advice from an algorithm versus a real live human beneficial or not? Potentially. I I think if you're looking to take a a passive strategy with your investments and, and put your money into a nicely diversified portfolio that's adjusted through software... I think that that can work, but I, I think it's even better is for people to have the, the financial literacy and, and knowledge to make their own decisions and take, take control of their finances and really understand what they're investing in and why, because the market changes all the time. And 
uh, it's important to, to, to make pivots when necessary. Well, Doug, the, the big knock on humans is, well, we cost. And that's the big thrust of the of the advertising for these Quest Trade or whatever the name of the algorithm company might be, because it's all about fees and overall. Because, again, they're young people, small children, usually in the shot. And, and the wife says to the husband, over our lifetime, we could save, you know, and hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever. The knock being that humans cost too much. For sure, for sure. And, and uh, you know, I, I push in my book that one of the best ways you can start out is through passive index fund ETFs where you have management expense ratios far below 1%, and they'll often perform as good or better than actively managed mutual funds, which have management fees above 2%. Sure. And even a 1% to 2% change in the net returns per year over time can be hundreds of thousands of dollars by retirement. I suppose, Doug, though, it's that going back to your statement about, well, you know, if you have a balanced portfolio, uh, then, uh, you know, you're, you're in pretty good shape. It's This is the literacy aspect of my question. How many people who have some money to, to invest, whether it's for through government benefit programs or they've just got money because they didn't take a vacation this year, uh, and how do they know that getting uh, organizing a properly balanced portfolio is the route to go? And if so, how do you get a properly balanced portfolio. People don't know, Doug. Well, the thing with personal finance is that it's, it is personal and everybody has a different appetite for, for risk. They have a different objective. Some people want income. Some people want growth. Yep. And so it, it is worth it to sit down with someone if, if you're not willing to do the research and, and get educated yourself on, on what makes most sense for your portfolio. I would recommend talking with a, a financial advisor because you need to understand how much risk you're willing to take on and what that means for your investments, and and again, uh, it it's a. Uh it becomes a cost-benefit analysis. You actually have to go, okay, this speaking with this person may cost me a few dollars, a few more dollars up front than in just you know ticking boxes on, on, on an online uh, form. But uh, the benefit of spending the extra money, particularly up front when I need to be educated, may pay enormous dividends down the road. Absolutely. And I think there is a lot of uh, emotion attached to money, a lot of fear, a lot of intimidation. And so a lot of people don't end up putting their money to work in a way that can exceed inflation and, and grow their wealth over time. And, and they, they put money in money markets, cash, um, and that's not going to grow wealth. And so, and so risk is part of the game. It's just figuring out how much risk. Yeah. Uh, an email from Jim as we're speaking here. The, the GameStop ruse reminded me of the old pump and dump routine from days past. The last place to get financial information is social media. I think you'd probably agree with that one, Doug. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's lots of people on social media who are trying to do the right thing and educate people. But there are also lots of people out there that are looking to, to benefit themselves. And so a pump and dump is where someone, someone buys a stock at a low price and they go online and, and say how great it is and drive the stock price up, and then that person gets out, and the investor that took their advice is left buying high. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it with hedge funds? I, I personally, and it's just it's an emotional thing, and you're right. There's a lot of emotion attached to money, Doug. But I, I for example, don't like hedge funds because they strike me as betting against the success of the economy. I know there's a lot of money to be made in that, but it seems awfully negative to me, and I avoid them like the plague. And yet, there they were, front and center, uh, in, in in the crosshairs, if you will, a couple of weeks ago. 
Absolutely. And I, I agree with you. I, I have never taken a short position in anything or, or bet against a company. And in fact, if you look if you look back at the famous bet that Warren Buffett made against a hedge fund manager where he said, I'll bet you one million dollars over the next 10 years, the S&P 500 index passively managed will beat your hedge funds performance. Guess who won? Wow. So <laughs> it's very difficult to beat the market in an active way. That, that's why it's so important that people look at, you know, what's the lowest cost index fund that I can get into that I can set it and forget it and it will change with the market on its own and I want to pay any fees. And so for beginners particularly, we're down to our last minute here, Doug. So a couple of takeaways and you're big on takeaways in the book and I like the way you've structured that. Uh, a couple of takeaways today though. Uh, ETFs, for example, much highly, more highly recommended than individual stocks. Absolutely. Diversification is key, especially when you don't have a lot of money to invest. Putting all of your eggs in one basket is always a very risky endeavor. So find something that has diversification, dozens of stocks and positions within it that gives you that that, um, risk management against one of those stocks going bad. And final question to you, Mr. Allen, and we're grateful for your time and your book, sir. Where Where do people go to get it? Yeah. So the book is available in a paperback edition on Amazon as well as an ebook um, through the Kindle uh, app, and then also on Dr. Indigo as a Kobo ebook. So Kindle and Kobo, as well as Amazon. You got it. Doug Allen, thanks for this. I wish you considerable success with a fighting chance, the high school finance education everyone deserves. It's about time. Thank you very much. It's time for our Arts Corner here on a Sunday morning. And for the first time, we have a politician in the Arts Corner. Wait a minute. What's going on here? Bob Deeth is with us. Mr. Deeth is the MLA for Maple Ridge Mission. He is also the Government Caucus Chair. And specific to this conversation, he is the Parliamentary Secretary for Arts and Film. And he's here to talk to us about the Community Arts Festivals Program. Mr. Deeth, Bob, good morning. Good morning and uh, happy Valentine's Day. Well, the same uh, to you, Bob. Uh, tell us, tell us, tell us a little <laughs> bit about this community arts festivals program. It's a grant program. Uh, it's been up and running for a couple of weeks, and yet it still has a couple more weeks to go. So we're about halfway through this yeah. program. So tell us what's going on. Well, it's uh, yeah, absolutely. It's part of the uh, the overall funding that that uh, that BC Arts Council has been. Uh, been putting up for for arts and culture and and so now community arts festivals can apply to this um it's available to cultural arts organizations and it seems interesting because if you talk about well we're not seeing festivals you know because of of covid but uh what bc arts council's done which is wonderful is pivot um so a lot of the programs are actually being designed to keep our festivals going, keep our arts organizations going. And we actually started that right. Actually, I've been involved in this file right from the beginning because John Horgan had asked me to work with uh, Mr. Bear right, right after in February when, when all of this started to reach out to arts and culture. And because we knew it got hit, it's got, it's one of the sectors that's getting hit the hardest. No uh, question. Tourism. And, and we really wanted to make sure that, uh, that we were listening right away. So, I was on the phone and uh, we were doing our Zoom calls with dozens of arts organizations across the province early on. And, you know, Sterling, the big word that we heard was flexibility um, because a lot of arts organizations weren't able to produce the shows they wanted to produce. Sure, yeah. So what BC Arts, yeah, so what BC Arts Council did, which was wonderful, which was to say, hey, look, if you can't do what you need to do, you can, can't do it, then, then let's allow you to pivot your money into something that you can do. 
And and also there was uh, early on we announced three million dollars that allowed arts organizations to just keep their operatings going because they had to shut down. Yes, and indeed. So, so er, yeah. So early on there was uh, there was three million dollars for that, and then um, and then what happened in the spring, which was great too, is BC Arts Council said, look, apply now for your operating funding. Let's get it all up front. So so basically, uh, BC Arts Council got money to the arts organizations up front in the spring. And then uh, I continued to work over the summer with the minister, and we actually uh, consulted again to see, okay, with the extra money that we have for, you know, for COVID, what can we do with the arts community? Mm -hmm. And that's why in the fall there was uh, $21 million announced uh, for uh, resilience funding. So it's like $16 million for, again, keeping the lights and doors open, and then another one, $5 million for pivoting uh, organizations to pivot so that, that if they wanted to put on a digital show or other kinds of shows. So, so we've been working really hard on that. And then of course, when we got, when I got reelected, uh, um, you know, the premier asked me to actually lead up a, a new parliamentary secretary position for arts and film because uh, of the recognition of the importance of arts and culture in our community. Indeed, especially the film component. My gosh, that's what a cash cow that is for the BC economy, Bob. Oh, yeah. Actually, I did a, a, a tour of the Martini Studios that's doing uh, 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 Snowpiercer right now, and we did a virtual tour uh, last week. And it's absolutely astounding how it, when sectors work together, how they've been able to relaunch with all their COVID uh, protocols, uh, all the testing and all of the things to be able to continue to produce. And in fact, in the fall, they had record, the film industry, record production. Numbers. Exactly. And part of that is because because BC's you know, taking care of the, well, obviously we've got a long way to go with the pandemic, but because of Dr. Bonnie Henry and all the work that's been done, you know, we were in a, a good position to be able to allow the film industry to come back, whereas other jurisdictions in the world haven't. So, and, so it's really given us a, an advantage. And indeed, and, and because of the revival of the film industry, which, as you point out, is actually doing better business now than before the pandemic began. And, and, and the best part about that is the, is the fact that it's such a labor-intensive industry. There are many, many people mm. in the arts community who uh, are performers or writers or painters or sculptors or whatever who are currently working in the film business because there there's a job and that uh, is uh, it's a lifesaver so for so many people bob yeah no it really is and you know but we also recognize that uh you know i worked in the music industry for 30 years and i have so many colleagues uh, and, and theater you know it's it's so tough right now it's tough because it's one of the first things to have to shut down is live performances right and it's going to be one of the last things that come back so we really you know recognize as a government the importance of sustaining organizations and over how, this period so that you know how do groups uh, only a couple of seconds left here this is the, the the meat and potatoes here bob how do groups listening to us yeah. right now apply for and and maybe avail themselves of some of these funds well, absolutely. Uh, BC Arts Council, uh, just go onto the site and you can pl- at apply. There's actually another program that's really important for artists. It's called Pivot for Individuals. It's a twelve $12,000 uh, per artist uh, that can apply, and that's for dancers and visual artists and writers and musicians and multimedia and actors so that they can pivot, uh, learn video editing, uh, do some sort of collaboration. So that's open until February 16th, so I encourage everyone, please, uh, 
apply for the Pivot for Individuals program. It's a great new program. All right, Bob D., thank you for this. And that website again, friends, is bcartscouncil.ca. Bob D. from uh, Maple Ridge Mission, thanks for joining us this morning. Happy Valentine's to you. You you too. Thanks, Jordan. Bye now. My pleasure.